Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll continue in our series. We're going to look at one of those rare passages this morning. The only glimpse of the Lord Jesus as a boy. Okay, uh, chapter 2, we begin reading in uh, verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, They went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy, Jesus, lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look. Your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I'm going to call our message this morning, Living on Purpose or the Deliberate Life. People often talk about living with purpose, a direction, goals. Uh, yet directions and goals change. In people's lives, don't they? Sometimes they seem kind of vague. Uh, They talk as if all of their actions and decisions follow their goals and their purpose in life. And yet, they're inconsistent. We're inconsistent, to be honest about it. We need something like this, a little sign. You know? A little little uh, description, like on a product you get in the store, you know, or, an, or a free offer or something that talks about the person, but it says, you have to read the fine print. You know what the fine print says? It says, subject to change without notice. <laughs> I think my wife is amening that back there. 
It's true, isn't it? We are subject to change without notice. Let's be honest. Uh, we claim to like options. Make, we, we make choices based on our goals. From life decisions to everyday uh, choices. What will I do with my life? What will I do today? What will I do for the next hour? And we're not consistent in our choices, are we? We have to admit that. We don't always do the best or the right thing. Uh, we don't always do God's will. Too often, uh, we choose the easiest way or that which brings the most pleasure. I do what I want to do. We avoid pain, sorrow, suffering, submission. We like to say, I'm my own boss. I like to keep my options open. Choose the path of least resistance. Our lives can be summarized by the choices we make. Some good, some bad. The greatest life ever lived. I, you know, you ought to envy me. I am up here. I get to talk about Jesus for a whole hour. I love this. Greatest life ever lived. The Lord Jesus Christ. Uh didn't have the options we have. The key word in this uh, passage, by the way, is down in his answer. You know what it is? It's a four-letter word. Must. I must. We're going to talk about that this morning. In a sense, his life was the simplest of lives. So simple. To him, there was only one purpose for his life. To do the will of him who sent him. That's it. Isn't that simple? Man, simplest life ever lived. He literally had no will of his own except to please his father. Every action, every thought, every word fit that purpose, that goal. It wasn't like, I have this goal now, let me see, what do I need to do now? No, it came from his heart. He was that way. You understand? It came out from the depths of his being. It's the way he was and is. What a simple life. Just one goal, to please God. Uh, it, it was the simplest life, and yet it was the only perfect life ever lived. Perfect. You know, we use that word. We throw it around, perfect. You know, we don't know perfection. We, we talk about all kinds of things being perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ was and is perfect. Think about that. You know, we, we think of that word. Every word, every thought, every deed was consistent with his purpose in life. Try it yourself. Starting right now. Every word, every thought and every deed is going to be consistent with pleasing God. Okay. How long do you think you'll last? <laughs> 30 minutes. Wow. Okay. I have to confess. I think I, I would. Uh, there you go. Thank you, Russ, for your honesty. And yet, let's not be deceived. It was the simplest life, but it was the most difficult life ever lived. Do you realize Jesus was swimming upstream for his whole life? You know what it's like to swim upstream? We went camping up at the Redwoods recently, and the Eel River was pretty swift. You get, you get tired after a while. 
So when I say it was difficult, it wasn't that it was hard for Jesus to make the choices. No, the choices came from his heart. It's just that he was going against the grain his whole life. It says in the old King James, I love it in Hebrews, um, he endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Isn't that good? He endured it his whole life. Man, he was going against the grain the whole time. For we have a lot of young people here for young people, you know, uh, their future consists of a world of possibilities. I remember it's not so much in vogue anymore, but it was when I was a kid. When you were a kid in in my uh, youthful days, you meet a new grown up that's never met you before. One of the first questions they ask you, you know what it is? What do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) You ever heard that? I used to get that all the time. And depending on what day it was or what book I just read or what movie I just saw, you know, it was anywhere from a fireman to a forest ranger to a, a scientist to a brain surgeon. But for young people, you know, they have their whole life before them. And it's a world of possibilities, realm of countless choices, which they can change at will and do. As they start down various roads, decisions and choices of the smallest degree to the greatest are constantly made at the last moment on a whim or sometimes randomly random and changed as quickly as they're made. I'm not picking on you. Old people do that, too, don't they? You know? In uh, the, uh, an area of mathematics called statistics, there's a, a whole area of study called the random walk. It's very interesting. Um, and it's become a whole area in and of itself, the mathematics of the random walk. It started what was called Brownian motion. There are a lot of mod- molecules in the air right now. We don't see them, but they're constantly in motion, bumping against each other and so on. And if you followed one molecule for a, a half hour or so, its path, would be a very interesting line. It would look, you know, it looks like a random walk, okay? But there are some areas where it something looks like it's random, but really there is a purpose to it when you're finally done. The classic illustration of it is called the drunkard's walk. And I remember seeing in my old uh, math textbook had a picture of two lamp posts, and the drunk was at one, And he wanted to get to the other. And they would run a program, you know, after observing, I guess, a few guys. And, you know, the path was like this. But eventually, you know, he got there. But it wasn't the shortest distance between two points. Okay? And I think often our lives, you know, at the end of your life, you look back, you went from point A to point B, but it wasn't a straight line. You know, a lot of detours, a lot of uh, false starts, a lot of backtracking, you know, a lot of bunny paths, having to return to the to the main road. Our purposes and our goals in a direction are not as fixed as we think. For Jesus, it wasn't like that, you see. Man, he lived with purpose, single mindedness, determination. The word is devotion. We're not talking about some mechanical robot here. His whole life was motivated uh, by his love for his father. That's where this came from. And his love for you and me. You think about it, you know, his life was already written down before he was born. You know, isn't that interesting? From birth to death, including details of his death, 
already written down. In a, in a way, you know, you could stand at the manger and look down the path of his life. It's a straight line. You can see at the very end of the cross there waiting for him. And as he went down that path, he never strayed. He never veered. He never faltered. He never turned back. You know, man, he just he, he set his face like a flint. It says he walked every single step toward that end. Not out of a mere, you know, grim sense of duty or something, but he was moved by the greatest love ever demonstrated. As the scripture says, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem where he would be tortured, die a violent death and bear the sins of the world and then raised from the dead. Praise God. And what did he accomplish by that kind of a life? Well, Nothing really big. He just made it so that I don't have to go to hell, but I get to go to heaven and be with him forever. What do you think? Can you measure that? Can you put a price on that? Wow. It offers that to everybody here this morning. Everyone in the whole world. He opened heaven, literally. Listen to how God puts it in his word about this heart of Jesus. Listen carefully. It's in Hebrews. Therefore, when he came into the world, it's talking about Jesus now. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. Oh, God. Isn't that good? When he came into the world, that's what he said. Notice it didn't start when he was 12 or 30. I love that. When he came into the world, that's what he said. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Listen to this. By that will, we have been sanctified forever through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Isn't that good? By that will. By what will? By the will of his father and his uh, single-minded determination to do it. The end result is, oh, we're sanctified forever. That's great. Notice it said when he comes into the world, he said that. And by the way, uh, it didn't start when he came into the world, this determination, okay, to do uh, what he did. Because in uh, later in Revelation, he's referred to as the lamb. Listen to this, slain before the foundation of the world. Wow. Okay, well, you, you keep saying, when are we going to look at the passage? We'll do it now. This is a jewel of a passage. As I said, it's the only description of Jesus as a child. But think about it now as a snapshot of that life. I think that's why God put it here. Okay, we see him in his public ministry from about the age of 30 to 33 with that determination to do the will of God. But it didn't start there. And so in this little snapshot of a 12 year old, it's just as strong and clear as we see it later. And as we think about this, just, you know, don't lose the sense of awe and wonder. God became a man (laughs) and lived among us, you know. Uh, when he created the first people, Adam and Eve, you know, they were full grown from the get go. He could have done that, you know, he could have just appeared 
Nobody would have known the difference, right? One day, here he is coming into Jerusalem talking about God. Nobody would know where he came from, right? Instead of having to live that 30 years, you know, with all the limitations of humanity. But it's incredible. He was, he was born. He was a baby. He grew up in a family. This is incredible. It's wonderful. That's awesome. You want something awesome? Man, that's awesome, okay? And so this is incredible. It says here at the beginning, he grew. Imagine God is a man growing. He grew physically. It says he grew strong in spirit. It says he, in wisdom. Good word, by the way. God didn't say just knowledge, information. Wisdom. That's the right use of knowledge. By the way, before we go any further, let me short circuit a couple of uh, vain speculations. The, the two biggest areas that, that heresy come from are when people try to push on one of two things. There's one God and there are three persons who are co-equal as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can you explain that? Don't try, okay? And if that bothers you, well, you're the one that's weird, not God. No, I'm serious. Because before you ever even existed, there was God and nothing else, okay? And he is three persons. That's the right way. <laughs> okay? We're just one person. So we're the odd man out. God is the right, okay? We're simple. But people press on that, you know. Oh, man, I don't know. How can there be one God and three persons equal as God? It doesn't make any sense, you know. And they try to come up with these ways of pushing and explaining that. And all kind of crazy things come out of it. Just don't go beyond what the Bible says. Okay? And here this morning, often uh, it's Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is fully God, completely and fully man, perfect humanity. Okay? Not the God-man. I don't like that phrase that was used by a cult. And what they meant was a new kind of a nature. Not God and not man, but God-man. That's, not, that's, her, that's heresy. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Okay? And people try to push on that. I don't understand that. How can that be? And they try to explain it. And they fall into heresy. So... You know, don't start asking, well, when did Jesus know he was the son of God? When did he uh, achieve his Christ consciousness? You know, all these crazy things. That's that's silly. OK. Don't go beyond what the Bible says. And you'll be safe. So instead of going off on that, that silly stuff, I like I love just thinking about this here where it says he grew. As soon as I read that, you know what I thought of that wonderful uh, verse in Isaiah 53, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. That's talking about Jesus. It's a prophecy. Okay? And God says about his son as he grew up, says he will grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Man, that's packed with beautiful insights into the person of the Son of God. First, just the fact, it says he will grow up before him. You, it's, it's like nobody's watching but God, you know? But, boy, I'll tell you, he is watching, and he is so delighted 
Can you imagine? Uh, who knows how many thousands of years he's seen people come and go. All sinners. All self-centered. Not seeking God first, but their own selfish uh, desires, right? And at last, here comes the man, his son, and his only desire is to please his father. You think that was a delight for his eyes? It says in the Old Testament that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro over the earth looking for a heart that is totally his. And he found it. Here it is. Oh, man. That must have looked so refreshing, you know? Grow up before him. I love that. What delight, what joy it was to the father to see his his son as he grew up. The first and the only perfect life. And, And this is the God who looks at the heart, by the way. Okay, we're not talking outward show. We're talking deep down inside. He's not faking it. It's real. A tender plant is a tender plant. I like that. doesn't mean he's fragile, but beautiful, innocent, sinless, a tender plant. And then, of course, the other idea, a root out of dry ground. There's no visible source of nourishment for a root in dry ground. Okay? You see a blooming... Uh, a colorful plant out in the desert. And you wonder, how can that thing grow there? Jesus grew up in this world and he didn't draw his sustenance from the world. He was tapped in to his father. Uh, there's, uh, I've referred to several verses where I've uh, emphasized kind of the obscure sections we don't think about a lot. There's another one that I like in Psalm 22 which is a psalm that portrays his suffering mostly on the cross. But there's a wonderful little section at the beginning of it that talks about this idea of the heart of Jesus. It begins this way. It should be very familiar to to you. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Which is quoting verbatim the scoffers at the foot of the cross later. Right? But then it goes on to say, and it's Jesus speaking now in Psalm 22. And he says this, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. Now, listen to this. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. You got that? From my mother's womb, you have been my God. I've had no other desire but you. That's great. Now, David, in some sense, had, you know, some relationship to this, obviously, because he wrote it, but not to the depth that it applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. From the earliest days, Jesus found no sustenance here. Okay, no attraction to the world and its trinkets to which we're so often sidetracked. Nothing to him. It was dry ground, a desert. He found all his satisfaction and his joy and his happiness in God. Jesus talked about the first commandment when queried about, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And of course, he quoted it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. You know, for him, that wasn't some kind of exterior commandment that he thought, oh man, I got to do that. Let me grit my teeth. I'll try real hard. That's... It was the outflowing of his heart. 
He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength, 24 hours a day. And he didn't have to try. <laughs> it, it, it was him. Okay? It says here uh, in verse 40 that the grace of God was upon him. Take note of that. One of the few places where the word grace doesn't mean undeserved favor. Okay. When it's applied to us, when we receive the grace of God, we say, what is that? Yeah, somebody asked you, what does that mean, the grace? It means God's undeserved favor. Not in this case. The grace of God was upon him. <laughs> it was it was the rich blessing in favor of God because it was his son who loved him in whom he found all his delight, as he says later. By the way, uh, note here, Jesus loved and honored and obeyed Joseph and Mary. We know that because it's one of the Ten Commandments, okay? But uh, that love for them still took a distant second to his love for God. You wonder if they saw that. They had to have, you know, this intense love for God. Maybe that's why he asked them, didn't you know? You know, I need to be about my father's business. I think he's saying, you should know that by now. You know? Well, verses 41 and 42. He's 12 years old. We don't know because God doesn't tell us if this was his first trip to Jerusalem for the Passover or not. It may well have been. Um, At the age of 12 in those days, uh, a Jewish boy became what was called a child of the law. And he was officially uh, subject now to the law and was expected to demonstrate by his life that he was a, a mature uh, believer in God and so on. So that may have well been the first time that he uh, went up to the temple with his parents. But it was a week-long festival, the Passover, And it says in verse uh, 43 that when they had finished the days, they returned. And again, we're not sure, but um, they could have stayed for the whole week. It'd be kind of expensive for them on Joseph's probably pretty meager uh, living as a carpenter to stay away that long from the business and put up in Jerusalem. Uh, They were allowed to finish the celebration after two days. That was the that was the important thing, that they be there for the main celebration. And then they were allowed by law to go home if they wanted. So it looks like that's probably what happened. They were headed back on the third day. There's a clue to that because uh, after the first two days, toward the end of the week, the uh, teachers and the Lord and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees would come out from the temple and they would teach publicly right there in the in the temple precincts. And just ordinary folks could come up, one of the few times they could ever do this, and talk to them and discuss with them spiritual things. You see, they could ask questions, you know, and talk about some of the uh, issues with them. So that's not, that probably means that they had gone home on the third day and that Jesus stayed behind during that time to do just that. A 12-year-old, okay? <laughs> staying behind to talk with the religious leaders of his nation. And uh, it's interesting, by the way, that uh, it took them three days to find him. 
isn't it? By the way, if you wonder how in the world could they lose him that way, it says in uh, 44 uh, that they supposed him to be in the company. So you have to realize uh, they didn't get in their Toyota and drive down there as a family. Okay? When, uh, a, a, particularly a small village like Nazareth, the, a lot of the people would go down to Jerusalem uh, for the feast. They'd go together. And that's great, right? You know, your neighbors, your relatives, your friends all get together. So you could have a hundred people, maybe even more, in this kind of like big caravan going down to Jerusalem. And so you could very well picture that as they're going back, you know, probably the young people are together and the older people are together, you know, and they just assumed he was with the, the others somewhere. And so that's why it wasn't until they got now a, a day out of Jerusalem that they realized he's not with them. So it's, it's not that surprising. Now, what's interesting is the words that are used to describe what Jesus was doing here among the teachers. It says in verse 46, Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening. Listen now, both listening to them. Okay, makes sense, right? And asking them questions. And uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear the conversation? Boy, that would be interesting. It certainly would have to be in the nature of the kind of things that happen later, wouldn't it? You know, he would ask them penetrating questions that uh, not in a mean way, but just by the nature of what he asked would expose their inconsistencies and their hypocrisy as it did later. You know, he'd ask them questions about God and about man and God's relationship with uh, man and, and sin and judgment and so on. And so it's not surprising that it says they were astonished at his understanding. But listen to this, verse 47. They were astonished at his understanding and answers. So in the process of discussion, you can see, you know, he'd ask them some zinger. One of the best defense mechanisms, by the way, if you're ever leading a study or anything, when somebody asks you something like that and they throw you a curve, you know what the best response is? What do you think? Isn't it? You ever had that happen? Next time you hear it happen, tell yourself, oh, he doesn't know the answer. (laughs) Now, that's not always true. It certainly wasn't with Jesus. But I could imagine, for example, that happening. You know, he'd ask them some question. I don't know if he asked them yet. We know he asked them later. You know, um, the Messiah, whose son is he? Well, David's, they'd have to say. And then he'd ask them, well, if he's his son, how can he call him his Lord? which he does in the Psalms. They don't have an answer for that. So maybe they say, well, what do you think? You know. <laughs> but the point is, at 12 years old, these, these guys with white hair, you know, and white beards, when they ask him questions, they're astonished at his answer. Isn't that interesting? See, they, I, it might begin, be beginning at this point, but they haven't learned to hate him yet. He's not seen as a threat. And when he speaks, somehow they can tell it's true. You just know it. You know, when he speaks, it says says later, he didn't speak like the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, he didn't waffle. He didn't speak double talk. He didn't talk like a politician. He, He spoke the truth. And when he said it, you could tell he knew what he was talking about. 
And they can sense that, you know, I love I love this uh, statement he made to Nicodemus, a, a, a leading Pharisee who knew his stuff, supposedly. And he snuck into Jesus at night and wanted to talk to him about spiritually. I love what Jesus told him in comparing their authority and their understanding of spiritual things. His and Nicodemus's. Listen to what he said. Most assuredly, I say to you, we, by the way, we, he's talking in the plurality of deity. We, okay? We speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Whoa. It's God, okay? You getting this? You want to know what heaven's like? I'll tell you. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Listen to this. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. Who is he talking about? Himself. That's right. That is the son of man. Listen to this. Who is in heaven. (laughs) He's God. Wow. No wonder he spoke with authority. Well, uh, now we bring Mary and Joseph into the picture. And dear Mary, you, you can imagine, she, her heart is just torn apart. You know, if, any, if you ever had the experience of, of losing a kid in a crowd, you know, just for a few minutes sometimes, right? You know that feeling, right? Can you imagine three days? Three days. They might have begun to think, oh man, you know, he's been kidnapped. Maybe he's dead, you know? They were amazed. It's interesting, by the way, that it took them three days to find him at the temple because that's where he would have been the whole time. Isn't that interesting? I wonder where they expected to find him. I wonder where they looked. We don't know. It doesn't say. But uh, there's something very significant here about Jesus' response now. And we're going to talk about two versions. The, uh, my New King James, and I believe the Old King James says, I must be about my father's business. Isn't that correct? Business. Now, it's unfortunate that word is not in the original business. It's a much broader statement than that. In fact, the NASB, if any of the Shorkins are here, I think they use a NASB. It actually says in their version, I must be in my father's house. That's really what he said. In fact, the word house is italicized. If you look at it, it's really I need to be in my father's and then there's no word. And it's not unusual. It's an expression in the Hebrew at that time. And it simply meant, I need to be in my father's house doing the things of my father. Okay? So you get back to the King James, and it's really not too bad then about his business. But it's broader, broader than that. But the point is, he's in using that phrase, he's saying, you should have known where I would be. You see. I needed to be in my father's house. You should have known that. You, you, would have, you could have come right here. And that's where you would have found me. Well, so much for the niceties of the Greek. Because all Mary knows is she is just uh, relieved and sorrowful and happy and upset all at the same time. And uh, she begins a train of questions to Jesus that occur throughout the, the Gospels. By saying, why have you done this to us? <laughs> you know, what does that remind you of? 
Maybe uh, the disciples on the boat when Jesus is asleep, remember what they asked him? Don't you care? Jesus, don't you care for us? Remember that? Remember Martha with Mary? Mary's at Jesus' feet and Martha's busy cooking the dinner and she gets all upset and comes in. That lazy Mary sitting here and just listening. You know know what she said? Lord, don't you care? Does Jesus care? (laughs) How little they knew, huh? Oh, man. As their creator and later their savior. By the way, and it's interesting, uh, he's not slam dunking them there. You notice in verse 51 uh, that he went down with them after all of this and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, notice, by the way. Isn't that interesting? God put that little phrase in there. See, it wasn't God's will for him to begin his public ministry yet. And it wouldn't be for another 18 years. So uh, he returned to Nazareth, was in the family and was submissive to parents who did the best they could in raising him. But I'll tell you, if there was ever a perfect submissive boy, it was Jesus. You know, kids, if you think you've got parents with failings and you have trouble obeying, what do you think about Jesus? Huh? You think Jesus might have seen a few flaws in uh, Mary and Joseph? What does it say? He was subject to them. Think about that. It wasn't, uh, you know, condescending. It wasn't sassy. It wasn't disrespectful either. It was from the heart. It had to have been, or it would have been sin. I love that. I don't know if you caught this little exchange here, by the way. You notice what uh, Mary asked him. She said, um, your father and I, did you catch that? Have sought you anxiously. She's talking about Joseph. Now, is Joseph technically his father? No, he's not. Now, obviously, they, they use that expression in the family. But uh, Joseph is his stepfather. God is his father, okay? And what's interesting is Jesus' response. She says, uh, your father and I have been seeking you anxiously. And Jesus said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Okay, or about my father's business. Isn't that interesting? It's no wonder they didn't understand him because she's seeking Joseph. And, and she's thinking, Joseph, when Jesus responds, you know, and like, okay, your father's business is back up in Nazareth in the carpenter's workshop. This doesn't make any sense. So I love, I love this. It says this about Mary a couple of times, you know, it says she kept it in her heart. Isn't that good? Like a mother, you know, she treasures it. I don't understand this now, so I'll just put it away for a while, you know. And maybe later it'll make sense to me. And I don't know, even in her lifetime, particularly when she had to have been weeping at the foot of the cross, if she, if she really knew. She, she couldn't have. Because it wasn't until after the resurrection that God made it plain exactly who Jesus was and what he had done. Maybe, maybe she had to have learned then. But she put it up in her heart. Well, so Jesus' response really... Uh, it shows us so much. It shows 
that uh, they, they probably should have known. Yeah, that's why he asked in that way uh, what he was about. Why, why did you seek me? Did you not know? But more importantly, it shows his heart that I was talking about. Here he is, 12 years old. You know? Look, I'm here to please my father. That's it. That's, that's my whole purpose in life. And everything I do and say and think is all centered around that. Nothing else. Every moment. You know? Big word, must. It's, we read it and we, and, we, and we think, oh yeah, that's right. Jesus said he must do it. Well, that makes sense. He had to. You know, I think we miss what he's saying. He's talking about this heart of devotion that he has when he says that. Later, he'll say, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Because for this purpose, I have been sent. Later, from that time, Jesus began to show to his, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised the third day. He says, I must do that because I want to please my Father. I want to do His will, whatever the cost. And then afterwards, of course, I love that, uh, that uh, way, the way He put it to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know, They're all upset and, and disappointed. You know, Here's this one they thought that would be the Messiah and He's been crucified. And now they hear these crazy rumors that he's raised from the dead and they don't know what's going on. And he says, oh, foolish men and slow of hearts, not to believe all that the prophets have written. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? It was necessary. It had to happen. That's why I came. The deliberate life. Jesus lived on purpose. He was dedicated. He was devoted. He was sanctified. That's a, that's a perfect use of the word, by the way. Sanctified means set apart for something very special for God's use. That's his life. Well, so here we are at age 12. And think about uh, already his showing that he's going to do whatever it takes to please his father. Here he is in a strange city at age 12. Without adult supervision. Okay. Did you ever think about it, by the way, for three days? What did he eat? Where did he stay? Think about it. You know what? He didn't worry about it. Did you know that? Listen, I'll quote him. About these kind of things, the Gentiles worry. (laughs) He says, you don't worry about it. Your heavenly father knows you have need of these things. You don't think that was his uh, modus operandi? Yeah. He didn't worry about it. And it got taken care of, I'll promise you. Because he said later, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these other things, food, lodging, raiment, whatever's necessary, will be added to you. By whom? By God. You think Jesus sought the kingdom of God first? Yeah, I think so. He lived it. That wasn't a theory for him. And here we are at age 12. He's already demonstrating it. Later, he'd say, my food, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. Praise God. What a savior, huh? Man, I am so thankful that it was something like this that worked out my salvation. Huh? You can know it's been done right. 
and it's good forever. There's no fine print, by the way, okay? It is not subject to change without notice. Uh, try to count some time, the, the number of times Jesus word, used the word eternal and forever. That's the only adjective he uses in talking about what he's done for us. Isn't that great? Praise God. Okay, well, uh, the other application besides worshiping Jesus is, if you haven't trusted Jesus, I think you might be a little convinced by now that he's the kind of guy you can trust. I don't mean just for now, but for eternity. Okay, if you haven't done it, man, what are you waiting for? And if you do that, the cool thing is, you know, your life gets simplified just like Jesus's. You know what happens? You end up, now you just have one purpose in life, to live for him. Just like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sing that wonderful song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And it echoes our hearts this morning as we think about you and your just dedication to all that you have done for us. Lord, it's going to take eternity to begin to appreciate and understand all that you have done. We just say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing it all for me. And Lord, we just plead for anyone here who is still on the outside that they would stop delaying and come to you today. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.